Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about Qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for $20 off your first order. Hello, and welcome to the Collective Insights podcast. I am very excited to have Tristan Harris with us today. Tristan is a very good friend and is doing extraordinarily important and unique work in the world. Uh, he's really been leading the conversation in Silicon Valley and now really around the world in terms of considering ethics in the design of technology and very specifically in the design of uh, media technology, software technology, uh, and also really bringing to the forefront of the uh, awareness of the technology community and really the world at large, including uh, government and policy, et cetera, what some of the risks of media tech in particular are. And when we think about risks of exponential technology, it's not just like genotech, biowarfare, AI, uh, military application type things, but it's the uh, technologies we're already interacting with that have the ability to affect the information ecology and gather data about and send data to tremendous numbers of people with a tremendous degree of sophistication. And because of uh, Cambridge Analytica and uh, Russia and, you know, et cetera, with Facebook, this conversation is publicly much more well-known today than it was even a year ago. And Tristan has been one of the voices really helping to uh, bring some of the key insights to bear here, but has been working on this for some time. He was the uh, product philosopher at Google who was working on ethical design um, at Google and left there to start a project and really a movement uh, called Time Well Spent that said rather than optimize people's time on site, which might be terrible for their life, how do we optimize people actually having a good life, which means that their time is being well spent. Time well spent has evolved and become a, a big movement and been uh, taken on as a thing to do by Zuckerberg and you know, many organizations. And uh, Tristan has uh, founded a organization now called the Center for Humane Technology. So how do we build technology cognizant of all of its effects, the externalities, internalize them and make sure that we're building the world we really want to build. So Tristan is doing super important work, also a beautiful human, good friend. Tristan, thanks for being here today. It's so good to be here with you, Daniel. So I expect that many of the people listening will have already come across your work, uh, watched the TED Talk, seen 60 Minutes, something like that. And if that's the case, just sit tight to these first few minutes where I asked Tristan to kind of share the foundational uh, teachings again for people who are not already familiar with the story. And then we're going to get into a bunch of topics that are really at the core of some of the insights and motivations Tristan has been working with and conversations that he and I've been in for a couple of years now. Uh, but that are things that even if you followed his work closely, you will have more to learn about from this podcast involving uh, hypernormal stimuli, involving uh, exponential tech across many categories regarding um, trust and fiduciary agreements and uh, information ecologies. So a lot of meaningful things to be tuned into. So Tristan, to get started, 
for people who haven't been thinking about this, Facebook seems like a pretty benign thing. Uh, hop on there, you get to see your friends, do basic social media stuff. Why is that not the whole story? Um, well, there's so many reasons why that's not the whole story. Um, so where do we begin? Well, uh, at the top of this, um, I think it's important to understand what are the goals of the people who make the technology that we use? And are their goals aligned with our goals? Um, I um, actually started into this conversation um, by, by first studying um, persuasion or magic. Actually, when I was a kid, I was a magician starting at six years old. And it teaches you to see people's choices, quote unquote, in big air quotes, uh, very, very differently. Because uh, instead of seeing what people do and think and choose as being a product of some kind of sovereign process, um, it teaches you that there are ways of influencing people's attention, their choices um, by structuring a menu in a certain way, by using emphasis on certain keywords, uh, by changing the representations people use, by activating certain cues, you can really change how people quote unquote choose and navigate uh, reality. And then um, when I was later in college at Stanford, I studied at this persuasive technology lab that basically taught a lot of young engineering students the principles of persuasive psychology. So you learn Edward Bernays, you learn clicker training for dogs, you learn how to casinos manipulate and shape the choice making environment that gets people to play slot machines. Um, and, and then marketing and pickup artistry. And there's just this infinite domain encyclopedia of stuff that influences the, the you know, evolutionary instincts of the human animal, the human social animal. And then my, my friends in that class were the founders of Instagram. And so what most people don't realize is that there's a sort of body of work that um, the tech industry pulls upon to figure out how can we keep people engaged with their products. And so that's where the conversation with Facebook enters. Instead of seeing it as a neutral tool, the, the narrative that's so common, or at least had been common until about a year ago, um, as we've been changing it this last year, is that technology is just a tool. It's just a hammer, and it's up to us to choose how we use it. Facebook is also just a tool. It's just a hammer. It's up to us to choose how we use it. And the premise is that's not true at all. That behind the screen, there's 100 engineers who know exactly how your psychology works and know exactly when to, you know, dopamine release uh, that perfectly timed dose of 15 likes from those 20 friends that, or those 15 friends that actually matter to you and know what exact schedule they should dose you with that to keep you uh, sort of hooked on the screen. And so the first important part of the conversation is the way that these products keep people hooked and engaged or addicted, because that sort of sets up the matrix. If you imagine a jack in the back of your head, that's what sets up the jack so it's nice, firm, and sturdy. And then the question on top of that becomes, uh, how can you actually start to steer and influence entire populations of thoughts and beliefs, conspiracy theories, um, anti-vax, uh, Russia disinformation campaigns, all of that gets set up once you first have this first layer of addiction established. And so um, I started getting concerned about this back when I joined Google, they acquired our company and um, uh, realized that more and more of my friends in the tech industry were actually focused on how do we basically manipulate people's psychology to keep them engaged on the screens and not really asking how do we benefit people's lives. Uh, and we can get into all of that, I'm sure. But one last thing on that, which relates to some of the resource dynamics that you're so familiar with, is I think for your audience to see that there's this finite resource that we're all drawing upon that we never actually thought to, to think about conserving or protecting before, and that's attention. That attention is a finite environment that is both an environment we pull from and we put back into uh, for others, and there's only so much. And because the business model of Facebook and Google and YouTube and Twitter and Snapchat are all basically to capture human attention, 
it turns into this arms race, whereas they start to butt up against each other, they have to get more and more aggressive, what's famously called the race to the bottom of the brainstem to hijack human attention. So maybe that sets the stage and we can go anywhere you want. So it's, it's probably obvious to many people, but to just construct it all the way in case people haven't thought through the business model and the incentive dynamics, um, why would a company like Google or YouTube or Facebook want to capture people's attention? Why would they want them to be addicted or hooked? Why would they want to maximize their time on site? What's the incentive or advantage of that? Well, um, I mean, Facebook has a stock price um, and a market value that's something north of $500 billion. And the question is, what is that tied to? What resources that is, is drawn upon to actually pump up that stock price? How do they make their money? So how much have you paid for your Facebook account recently? Not, not really anything. So then who's paying for them? Well, the advertiser, which means that our uh, attention is the product that they sell to the advertiser, which means that their basically motivation is to keep people hooked like a drug dealer and say, how do I keep people engaged every single day? They still to this day, even after adopting time well spent, which we'll talk about later, they still measure daily active users uh, as, their, as their number one metric. Um, just like a, a drug dealer might measure how frequently they're able to get people hooked. Um, and so uh, the business model is I make more money the more time you spend um, or the more I know about you because the better I can predict what ads will be matched to you. Uh, I also make more money the more users there are because I can sell that, that audience, the future of that audience and the growth of that audience to an increasing supply of advertisers. I make more money the more advertisers there are and the more ad campaigns there are, whether that's Russia or that's some good actor just trying to sell, you know, sell a pair of tennis shoes. And so the, their incentives are to basically close their eyes and make this automated system steer 2 billion people's thoughts and let advertisers pay to access any audience they want without double checking who's doing what. They just want activity because activity generates uh, money. Now, I just I want people to think about for point of reference, Tristan says 2 billion people that Facebook, Google, Amazon, right, all, the largest uh, digital interface companies that interact with basically the online world. And that 2 billion is scaling very quickly to, as the whole world's getting online. Um, yep. To just think about population curves for a minute, when we think about the Crusades during the Dark Ages and the propaganda of the Crusades taking over the developed world as we knew it at the time, there were only half a billion people in the entire world. Right. And for the whole history of civilization, there were only a half a billion people cap in the whole world until the Industrial Revolution, which is not that long ago. So we're talking about four times the entire population of the planet influenced by one company on a mostly daily basis. And yep. it's just a meaningful perspective to keep in mind. One other one we tend to add is um, uh, Facebook actually has more than 2.2 billion users, I think, which is about the number of notional followers of Christianity. Um, YouTube has 1.8 billion users, which is about the number of notional followers of Islam. So if you imagine just the surface area of influence on people's thoughts, uh, it's unprecedented. Okay, so when Islam or Christianity or the Republican platform or the Democratic platform or some ideology like that through broadcast media has tried to influence the minds of people in the past, they share a message through a commercial or through whatever it is that lands the same on everybody, right? So tell me why it is that interacting through a platform like Facebook has more power than those did per person at the same number of people. Yeah, this is so incredibly important because the number one objection to this entire argument space that we're walking into 
is this is nothing new. We've always worried about digital media. We've always worried about uh, newspapers when the people started reading them on the subway, they're not gonna talk to each other or we always worried about propaganda. We've always had this before. Therefore, nothing new, just go back to business as usual. So it's really important to understand what's different. So the first is less to do with Facebook and more to do with the fact that it's on a smartphone. The smartphone form factor means that we're living inside of 2 billion Truman shows, 2 billion perfectly curated attentional channels that are perfectly curated to, to whatever interests us, uh, our apps, our friends, et cetera. And from the moment we wake up in the morning and we undo our alarm to the 150 times a day that we check our phone through the day as a millennial, to the time we uh, set our alarm when we go to bed at night or don't set it and just keep playing with their phone until we fall asleep with the phone in our hand like so many people, um, we are truly intimately jacked in. This thing is influencing our moment to moment thoughts. Even when you're not looking at the screen, many of the things that you're thinking about now are very much um, dictated by things that you had seen five minutes ago when you were on the screen, whether it's your email or a text message or something else. So the first thing is the intimacy, the, the frequency and the kind of how much we're, we're, we're intimately interwoven with this fabric. Um, we kind of inhabit this environment. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it actually can, can persuade our social psychology. Um, television did not construct our social reality, it did not tell us what our friends were doing and how our friends, where our friends were, uh, what our friends found valuable, whether we were validated. It did through abstract advertising and using abstract people, but it's never before been true in history that when I wake up in the morning and I turn this screen over, I can see photo after photo after photo of evidence that my friends' lives are better than my life. I can see photo after photo after photo of my friends having fun without me. That's a new experience for 2 billion human animals, um, especially for the teenage audience. So that's the second aspect is the sort of social construction of reality and social persuasion. Um, uh, the third one is AI, and we'll get into this later, but uh, these systems are, are actually automated and optimized with the most powerful supercomputers in the world. Every time you open up Facebook or YouTube, you just activated a supercomputer pointed at your brain that's trying to figure out what move can it play to play chess against your mind and keep you hooked. It's a totally new, new, new environment. And then of course, the fourth related to that is that it's personalized, which I sort of said at the beginning, it's a Truman Show. It's, it's perfectly curated to your specific interests. And those four things um, are different and unique from any other time with radio, television, uh, the Crusades or, or things like that. Okay, so I wanna double click on some of these because they are so important and as they get unpacked, they become even more um, clear. So the first point form factor, I think everybody gets that. No one had that level of intimacy and continuous reference and push notifications with their newspaper, um, you know, or with a television, or et cetera. With regard to uh, the personalization and the AI part, most people have only seen their own Facebook channel. And they have a sense that that's what Facebook looks like. That's the environment. And everybody else's Facebook channel is probably fairly similar. It's a very sobering experience when someone looks at the Facebook channel of someone with a very different friend group and political ideology and maybe a different aesthetic and realizes that it's a completely different universe that has almost nothing in common, not the same advertisers, not the same people, not the same, like, uh, there were so many people I remember who thought it was so obvious that everyone in the world supported Standing Rock and it would go through and anyone who didn't support Standing Rock was a Nazi. Right. And then they saw someone who lived in the Midwest um, there, you know, or actually in Dakota or whatever, uh, their Facebook, and it looked like the exact opposite, that the people at Standing Rock were all terrorists. And, and they're like, what the fuck? I actually thought that I knew the universe I lived in, right? Just like before yep. the Trump election, everyone 
following the democratic platform, like Hillary winning was such a guaranteed obvious thing. Everyone, like it wasn't even reasonable to think anything else. Same thing with Brexit. Yeah, exactly. And so- One extra thing I want to add to what you're saying, which is um, you and I could have the same 500 friends, the exact same set of friends. And if we opened up Facebook today, we would see two, not just slightly different, but two completely different news feeds. Because based on um, our previous click history, uh, and the things that are uh, that we've both been interested in, which are very different, we'd actually see completely different news feeds. And the reason that these sort of filter bubble black hole things exist is actually, we'll, we'll get to it, I guess, a little bit later, is because of this dynamic of the attention economy, because if face, Facebook does better in the attention economy compared to YouTube or Twitter, if they personalize a feed to show you that everyone in Standing Rock supports the, you know, the thing that you, that you care about, um, versus if they if they showed you a more complex view of reality, actually reality is way more complicated. People disagree with you. That would not be as compelling. And so Facebook is driven by this this win lose game dynamic around attention to personalize news feeds. It has to do that, otherwise it won't win in the attention economy. Okay. So what does this do to the information ecology and people's ability to make sense of the world? So this is what's so dangerous, and I learned a lot of this um, speaking with you, Daniel. But uh, is that sense making becomes totally fractured. Um, I think one of the most dangerous parts of this is not that people are addicted, that they lost some time, or they're not spending their time the way they want to. Uh, the real critique and the danger is that our sense-making apparatus is completely frac fractured into a thousand or millions of pieces or billions of pieces, where we are living in completely different user universes, and we believe that we are living in the same universe. Um, and our norms and uh, you know models of what reality is and how other people believe things and what facts there are and what facts are not are not true uh, is completely divided, and we can no longer bridge the common reality anymore. And to me, that's the the most uh, uh, important um, aspect of this whole system. I think. So I think most people listening will recognize that they have a pretty clear certainty about some things where they know other people that have a very strong certainty about the exact opposite things and recognize that that at scale across so many issues represents a type of fragmentation and polarization and we say how the fuck does the world get through it and that it's more multipolar more certain across more axes and then I think most people also recognize that if you think about what are the most important things facing the world that you could know about, like how, how realistic that AI kills everything in the near term future, how likely is it that we're really going to be able to make it on Mars? Uh, where is climate change really at? Is it anthropogenic or not? And on what time scale, how long do the coral have before they all die off? What's happening with that continent of plastic in the middle of the ocean? Is Fukushima really releasing radiation like crazy or not? You'll realize like, whoa, those questions are more important than every question I ask. And I actually have no idea what the fuck is the case because there's ideas that are presented as pretty certain that are in direct opposition with each other if I pay attention to more than just my feed. So then there's like a, there's just no such thing as truth or fact. But that's, yeah. of course, not true. It's just there's no such thing as my ability to actually find truth or fact. So then how do we make choices? So if we have a world where technology is extending the potency of our choices, the impact, the leverage of them, while also damaging the sense-making to inform the choice, what happens if sense-making is going down and choice-making is going up simultaneously? Um, okay, so coming back to something you said, I'm glad we're living in such a pleasant, you know, present uh, uh, reality that you know everything's going to be fine. So how, 
I think it's clear for everyone that we have to actually be able to make sense of the world to make good choices. And that to the degree that there are places I go for sense making that have an agenda other than telling me what is most true, that there's a problem there. So now when you said Facebook is personalized in a way that TV wasn't, how does it personalize to me? I have never taken a psychological profile on Facebook. I've never written a psychological eval and told stories about my childhood. How does it know how to personalize to me? Because again, the, it might seem like all of one's engagement on Facebook seems pretty benign. Yeah, well, um, you know, just take a, your significant other and watch the kind of things that they click on if your significant other uh, clicks on a lot of cute animals. Uh, I have a friend um, uh, named Max who actually just clicks on lots of cute animals and his feed is totally filled with uh, just cute animals. And so without even realizing it, that's what most of his, uh, his consumption ends up reinforcing. Um, I end up looking at sort of save the world type things and concern about Russia and concern about disinformation. So my feed is basically uh, a general repeating view of <laughs> the world's falling apart and uh, you should feel helpless about it. Um, and neither of these things are good. And I think the, ch the question that Facebook faces now, I mean, imagine you're inside the newsfeed team, your job is to fix all this. And your job is to fix all this, not just for Daniel and Tristan from California, but to do this in Myanmar, Myanmar, where there's actually a genocide happening because of uh, the amplification of certain fake news there and also in Sri Lanka. These issues are incredibly real uh, and affect not just people's time or addiction, but actually affect when that sense-making breaks down um, entire populations, cultural sort of tensions um, that can lead to people dying. And so now, how do you, when you're newsfeed, you're also enacting exponential consequences and a team of a few hundred people um, in a system that you're trying to understand and control, but you're also impacting societies and languages that your engineers don't even speak. How do you do that? Okay, so let's say that I'm gonna play devil's advocate and be a representative of Facebook for a minute and I say, hey, if you're searching cute animals regularly, and I know that's what you want, and there's too much stuff on the internet to be able to find it, we're gonna make our algorithms find it and send it to you because we're just trying to serve what it seems that you want. And if you want to know shit about Russia, we're going to send that to you. That's just called us helping you do what it seems like you want to do better. What else should we do? Right. This is so incredibly important because essentially this is the root of the whole thing. It's, it's what is your model of human nature? Is what you observe a human animal doing a reflection of their conscious choices? If we check our, hundred, our phone 150 times a day, does that mean that those were 150 reflective, conscious, mindful choices? Or those 150 reactions to anxiety? Um, so in the case of Facebook, their, their model of human choice was, uh, if I ask you, Daniel, what do you want more of in your life? What do you wanna be doing? And you say, I wanna go to the gym. But then I, every single time you say that, I just, I just because I have one, I just throw a box of donuts in front of you. And I just see what happens. And if every time you go for the donuts instead of go to the gym, my, my assumption is when you told me you were going to the gym, that was just a lie because your revealed preference is what you really wanted is you wanted the donuts. And this is literally the, the, the philosophical model that I know for a fact was governing Facebook for you know, the last decade. Um, you know, we try to give people the, the, the nutritious content or something like that, but every single time they go for the cat videos. And so what are we supposed to do? Make people read the New York Times? And what this really comes down to is um, what are the factors like a magician that you could spot that influence the choices that people make? I mean, if when I said I want to go to the gym and I got a phone call from my friend saying, hey, I'm with my friend Susie right now, we're about to go to the gym. 
hey, we're going to the one that's like right down the street from you right now. Do you want to come? I mean, if I said I want to go to the gym and that's the first thing that happened, that's the choice that I would make. But because that's not the easiest, sweetest choice on life's menu, and the sweetest choice on life's menu in any given moment with a smartphone is, let me run away from my anxiety. Let me uh, uh, see photos of my friends doing stuff that makes me feel bad. Um, let me find some more slot machine email uh, and see what feels good. I'm going to go for that. And so we need to really dramatically upgrade our model of what does it mean for a person to choose if there is such a thing. And to the extent there was a reflective process that happened you know, hundreds of years ago, uh, it's not so much that there was this protected, perfect, sacrosanct thing called choice, but there certainly was a different phenomenological process happening inside of a human animal before we had digital technology. And it's ver working very, very differently now when you have something in, in your pocket that offers slot machine rewards. Okay, so I want to uh, argue something that someone at Facebook might say again, and see where it goes. So, uh, okay, well, Tristan, it sounds like you're saying that we should be everyone's parents and say, don't eat the donuts, go to the gym, do what's healthy for you, and that we're responsible for you and you're not responsible for yourself. That actually seems paternalistic and pejorative and uh, not like what capitalism, supply and demand would have a company realistically do. People are demanding something, we create the supply. If we don't, somebody else will. And that's actually just empowering what it is that people seem to actually be wanting to do. And it's their personal responsibility to decide what it is they want to do. And it's our offering them increased ease and ease and efficiency to do the things that they seem to be wanting to do. So are you basically saying that we should be like Big Brother and control what we think they should do? No, um, it's, it's really a different, more Buddhist insight of everything is a choice architecture. You're always living inside of a menu of choices. Um, you know, right now we're talking about the menu of choices that a smartphone provides, but when you wake up and your eyes open in the morning for the first time, you're also presented with a menu, which is the set of things that your mind shows you or tells you are available to you to do next when you wake up in the morning. But um, what this is really missing, this model of choice, is what are, the, what are the search costs? Like how far away are the choices that I would need to discover? Um, what awareness do I have of, of, um, of the more choices than I can see, like um, Facebook's presenting a certain menu of choices of some newsfeed content, but it's not presenting choices like, hey, your friend Daniel's hanging out next door and you wanna go hang out with him. Uh, you know, they, they have to have a very different model of, of attention really as the governing um, uh, uh, spotlight and, and tool set by which we're, through which we're making all these choices. And when our attention is on a screen and our um, esophagus is like, clamped down and we're staring down on the phone like this and we're not breathing very much, that whole phenomenology, that whole pattern does not give us the kind of free look up at the sky, you know, in awe and see what are the wide set of choices available to me next. And so I think of it as like we've, we've just kind of collapsed the space of human choice making down into this very small form factor and medium of here's a bunch of choices that you can make that'll keep you on the screen next. Um, so I think we, we need a different model of human choice. And it's, it's not simply uh, in terms of this normative aspect about being big brother, it's more that we already are big brother. Every system that's deciding a menu by which 2 billion other people live by has to ask, what am I putting on the menu? What am I not putting on the menu? And how is that changing or shaping the outcomes of choices that people make? Okay, so you just said a really key thing, which is <clears throat> it's not that we're saying that we 
should start shaping human behavior. We're saying we are inexorably shaping human behavior no matter what we do by creating environments, be they physical or digital environments, that humans respond to their environment. So then it's just taking responsibility for what are the actual statistical causal dynamics that are happening by the environments we create. So we're not saying humans are not responsible for themselves, but we are saying they aren't exclusively responsible for themselves in environments that are outside of what our evolutionary capacity equipped us to handle, which is why we don't like drug dealers dealing cocaine to our five-year-olds is because we could say, well, the five-year-old should be fully sovereign and responsible to, you know, leave the cocaine alone and be able to use cocaine in a responsible way. It's like, well, not really. It's going to fucking hijack their impulse control capacity, but we'll do a smartphone to a five-year-old. And we watch the dopamine hits endogenously that occur from the flashing lights and the blue and the like and the whatever it is. And we see the same type of dynamics with cocaine. So we're like, okay, is it really just a benign entertainment device so we don't have to parent? Um, and not just with children, but as it extends, because we really don't like the dealers dealing the cocaine to people anywhere, yep. especially in a way that like we, and that doesn't mean the answers make it illegal, but it does mean that the answer is some deeper considerations regarding the effects. And I think this is going to get to something that I'm sure we're going to talk about more as well, which is the asymmetry between the people who are designing the product in their power and how much they know about you and what would exploit you or cause that something to happen in you uh, and the power and awareness that you, the subject, have. So I think that this is a persuasive transaction. Um, and we haven't actually talked about some of the other persuasive design techniques um, that that, that exists. Some of them feel more innocuous, like bottomless bowls, things like autoplay, you know, your mind depends on the stopping cue. Uh, as a magician, you're always looking for stopping cues. You know, people are doing an activity and then let's say you're drinking a glass of wine and at some point the glass of wine hits the bottom and when the bottom hits, your mind wakes up and has to ask a question, do I really want more? Um, but if, let's say I'm able to refill that glass of wine with just auto, you know, filling alcohol, you know, filling to infinity, uh, so you never stop, uh, that'll change the dynamics of how often you wake up and ask, do I want more, especially as that has an intoxicating effect as you're drinking. And so YouTube can do the same thing. They can rip off the bottom of the bowl and autoplay the next video, which is responsible, by the way, for more than 50% of views on YouTube. Um, uh, Facebook and Instagram can make feeds that infinitely scroll, rip off the bottom of the feed, make people fall asleep and into a trance when they keep scrolling. These are the more innocuous ones, but when the asymmetry happens is when I, as a persuader behind the screen, know a lot more about how you or you, the teenager, psychology works. I mentioned the Snapchat example a lot, but I use a different one this time. Uh, let's say you, Daniel, uh, go dormant on Facebook. You stop using the product for like a week because you're, you, know, you got more important stuff to do. But Facebook sees you and they say, hey, I kind of want Daniel to be reactivated. In fact, there's actually an entire field of growth hacking called comeback emails or comeback notifications. Comeback are, are basically what do you send this person to make them come back? And so what would I do? Well, maybe I can show your friend Jordan, who's sitting there scrolling through Facebook and, and looking at stuff. And I can show Jordan photos um, where you're in the photo. And then you click on the photo, Jordan clicks on the photo, and Facebook recommends, hey, uh, we noticed Daniel's face is in this photo. Do you want to tag him in this photo? Yes or no? You don't even have to type his name. Just hit yes. It's a big blue button. Just hit yes. And when you hit yes, then Daniel, that dormant user, gets that email saying, Jordan tagged you in a photo. It's as if Jordan made his own independent sovereign choice to tag Daniel in this photo. And when you, Daniel, see that, you're thinking, oh, man, Daniel wants me to see this thing. I better, like, interrupt what I'm doing, let that project... Uh, you know, move aside and I'm going to go back and see this where this photo is. And of course, all of this is orchestrated by the puppet master upstream. And this is happening not 
explicitly, the example I gave is not an explicit thing that Facebook does, but these kinds of things are happening across LinkedIn, Snapchat, Facebook all the time. And, and this is the asymmetry. The people on the other side of the screen know a lot more about how the psychology of the people that they're influencing works. They also have AIs at their, at their side that help them predict which color buttons and which friends would help uh, act, reactivate you as a dormant user. So it's really how, not a fair fight. Talk to me about how the AI works. How does it know if I let, I'm going to respond more to a green or a yellow button or a word like this or a word like that? Well, it A-B tests on people just like you. So A-B testing is I'll send audience, you know, audience group A a bunch of buttons that look blue. Uh, and for the audience whose behavior looks a lot like yours uh, does, it'll see whether or not if that blue button works better than the green button. I'm going to start sending Daniel to the, to the blue button. And you know, every political campaign, people don't realize this, but I think the Trump campaign said that they had tested 66,000 variations of every single uh, ad before they, by the time it was actually reached to the, to the audience. And so this kind of A-B testing, it's, we're, we're kind of hill climbing our way or, or race to the bottom our way to the bottom of the brainstem to figure out these are the kind of word choices that activate your amygdala, your outrage, this is the colors that light up your brain, these are the words that most uh, make, make you polarized, most make you hate the, the minority population. You can really activate people in a perfect way now. So you mentioned that there's an AI playing chess with our brain and that there's an asymmetry. Now, when most people get on Facebook, they don't think that they're actually in a win-lose game. That there's information warfare going on and, and that there is someone competing for their attention. So that means that they're in a game that they have not even been aware of or consented to. And even if they had, uh, they wouldn't do well. And so, so talk a little bit more about like, where is AI at with its ability to play chess against humans? And how does that level of AI compare to what Facebook is running and et cetera? Yeah, this is really important. Um, I think it, it's particularly important for the AI community who always talk about, you know, well, we have these hypothetical future scenarios where the AI runs away searching for a goal. Um, and what if we can't control it? And what if I were to tell you that's basically what we have right now, that the Facebook newsfeed is a runaway AI and YouTube recommendations are runaway AI that are pursuing a simple goal of whatever shows you, whatever keeps you on the site longest. Uh, and it's, you can't even control the thing because now it's steering 2 billion people's thoughts. So let's go into what you just said about playing chess. You know how when you're doing something and some friend of yours sends you a link and the link is a YouTube video and you click on it thinking, okay, I'm about to interrupt my work, but I know those other times I watched, you know, a bunch more videos on YouTube, but this time, this time is going to be different. I'm just going to watch this one video and then I'm going to get back to work. And then somehow you wake up after two hours and you're like, what the fuck just happened? Uh, and it's because YouTube was playing chess against your mind. As soon as you landed on YouTube, you activate a supercomputer to figure out based on everything that's ever worked on you in the past. Well, every other video that's gotten you to watch, what's the video I can show next in that right-hand sidebar or make autoplay after this video is over? That's the perfect video that you will find irresistible. That everything in your body, it's, I'm not talking about a cat video, I'm talking about for you and I, it's like the perfect Buckminster Fuller video that we're like, oh my God, I've never seen that one or whatever it is. And that um, YouTube is, is basically succeeding at playing chess against us when we find ourselves falling into that trap. And we know what happens when human beings play chess against computers and we lose, when Gary Kasparov lost playing chess, he lost for all time. There's never a moment from that moment onward where human beings are simply better at playing chess than computers. At that point forward, the computer can see more moves ahead on the chessboard for all of human history for all time. 
So I just and this wanna, is what's so dangerous. Oh, go ahead. I just want to emphasize this particular point. Most people who are not already chess masters aren't aware of how much better at chess Gary Kasparov is than they are. Right. Um, like that there's a power law distribution in chess and it, it's orders of magnitude better than they are like he, he is. And the AI that beat him beat him at an even further gradient now than that. Right. And, and, you know, we get to a point where the AI is actually, it's not even, doesn't make sense for them to get better than they are at chess because we are so uncomparable uh, right. at this point. And then, you know, more complex things like Go and things that have to do with information like Jeopardy and et cetera. So then we realize that those AIs are no longer rare things that only happen in those environments, that those AIs are of a similar order of capacity to what optimizes Facebook newsfeed algorithms. And so if someone starts to get, okay, so there actually is a chess game against my brain, but instead of just being for the idea of a win, it's for a $500 billion valuation. So it has that much motive behind it. And it has this much data science behind it and this much time to do what it does. And, and I'm every moment you spend on it. Every, every moment you spend on it, you're feeding it with resources, which get reinvested into more computing capacity so it can predict even more moves ahead in the chessboard against your mind, so it can win even more next time than it did last time. And I'm nowhere near as good as Kasparov, and I don't even know I'm playing. Yep. And so then we say, oh, fuck, right? Okay. So it seems like human choice is actually a very delicate thing. And to the extent that we are going to be able to engage it well at all, we have to be very protective of the things that can otherwise hijack it. So talk to me more about the topic of a hypernormal stimuli, because you said that YouTube or Facebook is going to know what to put that will keep me more than other things. And interestingly, we can say it's going to be different for you and I than for, you know, someone who's got the cat videos, but realistically, there's some more basal shit for everybody that's going to respond. So talk about that. Yeah, so there's, this is important when you also talk about personalization. There's different persuasive techniques that work on different people. We have different vulnerabilities. Um, for example, let's just take teenagers because it's a little bit less personal. Um, different teenagers are differentially vulnerable to different things. So some people um, uh, are more vulnerable to fear of missing out. When they see that their friends are doing something without them, that, that hurts or pulls on them into a stronger degree than some other people who are just tuned differently, where that just doesn't actually matter to them. Um, a different uh, vulnerability is social validation. Some people are really sensitive to how often and how much they're socially validated, especially if you're in a developmentally sensitive period of being a teenager, where um, you know, we, we really don't know our own sort of, we don't have security in our identity and our own self-validation yet. And we get it from our peers, but now Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat are controlling how frequently they're dosing out those 15 likes into my, uh, my, my social validation. And to your point about why this is called um, a hypernormal stimuli is that if you think about back to tribal dynamics of, you know, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago or something like that, how often do you get social validation? What is the frequency and the way in which you would experience social validation? Um, it's important for us to feel or desire or need that. It's important for our in-group, out-group and to feel belonging and to feel part of the tribe and community and all those normal dynamics are really important. But now we have this exponential form of 
um, or really not exponential, but a kind of an exaggerated form of social validation that's occurring at a frequency and dosing and amplitude and variability that we've never seen before. So the slot machine isn't filled with colorful lights. The slot machine that you're pulling every 10 minutes is filled with your friends validating you. Um, and that is a totally new situation that is uh, highly addictive because when you get that much social validation from the screen and you don't get it from the real world, um, suddenly the real world social validation isn't nearly enough and you're sort of edged up onto this higher plateau of needing the kind of social validation that we get from, from the screen. Now, how does likes on Facebook relate to, and obviously I'm setting up a question based on conversations that we've had, but it's because I want people to get this whole narrative. How does like on Facebook that gives social validation relate to, say, people eating too much sugar or porn uh, moving towards extreme XXX that damages relationships? Like, what's the art narrative arc across that? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, I think you could actually describe these things in probably a better way than I could. I mean, porn is a hypernormal stimuli of sexual opportunity. Um, I think what, what I'd want to say about this is one of the interesting dynamics with the attention economy is that in a world where everything's already porn, the way to get more attention is to get even more radical, right? In a world where there's already lots of uh, political outrage, the way to get more attention is to move further down the radicalizing line. Um, so this has actually been shown by a former YouTube engineer who's joined Center for Humane Technology, Guillaume Chazelet who's done amazing research on how YouTube has a preferential steering towards radicalizing, divisive, and also higher, more extreme conspiracy theory type videos. In other words, if you airdrop a human animal and they land on one page in YouTube, uh, let's say of a 9-11 video, a regular 9-11 news video, two videos later after autoplay, it's driving them towards the conspiracy theories uh, at 9-11. If you airdrop a person into the, um, the moon landing, two videos later, you're inside of chemtrails or the moon landing is a fake or one of these kinds of things. Um, and he found that this is a system, systemic bias throughout the whole thing because of the dynamics of the attention economy and this race to the deeper and deeper bottoms of the, of the brainstem, which is a metaphor for just what puts us deeper into outrage, what keeps us more radicalized, because if these things are better at getting attention, then that's what the algorithms have to put at the top of the menu. So interesting, when you uh, said, you know, they're split testing to not just me, but also to demographics that I fit within. Demographics that I fit within um, go to basal motivations beyond what I think of as my unique self that are, right, are very interesting. So when I go to YouTube, if I watch a video on mathematics, I'll get more videos on math. But if I watch a video on Bruce Lee, I will get a whole bunch of UFC videos with titles uh, that are the titles that are most engaging. Be like, what the fuck is that about, right? Like, kid yeah. kills two UFC people in crazy attack or something like this. Now, the exactly. moment I click on one of those, they preferentially fill my news feed at like a 10 to one more than the math videos do. So then I watch 10 math videos in a row and I still got UFC stuff in there. I watch one UFC and there's no math videos left. I don't even like that stuff. I wouldn't even, right? But I'm part yeah. of a demographic where my biology said fights are evolutionarily very relevant because yep. they're dangerous, because I might die from it, because whatever. And so I get a basal ganglia hijack in a, in a different way. So they're not just paying attention to where my time and attention is actually going, but what will have a stickiness characteristic for maybe the worst reasons. 
Exactly. And the stickiness characteristic for the worst reasons is I think the defining thing that's driving the whole system is how does a computer know that these are the worst reasons to keep you there? Um, how do you encode? It's not, I mean, we use the word ethics and throw that around, but this is really just what does it mean to have something that is the deepest basal hijack? I mean, we should have a classifier maybe for how deep something's going to our evolutionary instincts and then counter optimize for it or something like that. But um, one of the other dynamics that's relevant to what you're talking about is, as you said, um, it only takes a couple of those USC videos to start getting pushed deep into the, the sidelines of, of, of all that more radicalizing stuff. Because there's only so much attention, that actually starts to occupy a greater and greater percentage of your attentional footprint. Um, and so then you can imagine conspiracy theories becoming the norm. Um, this is true, by the way, also with Facebook. So it turns out that um, for a while, Facebook was optimizing, actually as of last year, if you remember there was a moment after the election when Mark Zuckerberg wrote this big piece saying, uh, we have this new mission and our world is not just to make the world more open and connected, but it's to bring the world closer together through groups and community. And so they had this goal of like, well, hey, Facebook groups therefore might be the answer. So let's start maximizing how much people get driven into groups, right? And so guess what, when you combine the goal of maximizing time spent with maximizing groups, what groups do you end up having people join? So it turns out if you join one group called, um, uh, I don't know, some kind of doctor's group or something like that, it's gonna recommend uh, anti-vax, uh, the anti-vaxxers group. Um, uh, the, the, the vaccine conspiracy thing with, with, with mothers. If you join Pizzagate, it's gonna recommend uh, chemtrails to you. Uh, and so it, it, it creates these groups that basically are even stronger at persuading you of certain beliefs because the most active members of the group are the ones with the most radical beliefs and they post all this stuff that's very persuasive because it's getting socially validated by people. You're suddenly inside of a new environment, a new social environment in which all these people believe things that are um, radical, but they seem true because everyone else believes them. I studied um, uh, cults actually earlier in my career and I would join these groups where you would see really smart people influenced by kind of out there new agey stuff that didn't feel quite right. But if you're sitting there saying, well, that's a doctor who's believing this, that's a NASA space scientist who's believing this, they're smart people. So surely this must, they can't be too crazy. But that shows you how much of our epistemology and how much our way of knowing what's true is influenced by what other people seem to say is true. And so the reason Facebook, I think, is so dangerous is it's a social persuasion machine. It can validate things that are so um, far from true, but create this unprecedented un, you know, level of validation for things that are, that are just so far away from reality. Um, and it's been shown, I mean, one of our research uh, uh, group partners, Renee DiResta, um, you know, has, has really done this work with, with vaccine groups and, and shown just how powerful it really is. Okay, so if we, if we think about what's unique about Homo sapien, we say, all right, a horse is up and walking in five to 20 minutes, and a human takes a year. And we're like, how many multiples of 20 minutes go into a year? That's ridiculous, right? And even our next closest of kin, a chimpanzee or a gorilla, can hold on to mom's fur from the first few minutes as she moves around, and we can't even move our head for three months. And we're like, okay. So why are we so embryonic for so long and take so long to develop? Well, because unlike the other animals, we change our own environments. We're, we're niche creators, so we don't just live in the Congo or the Amazon. We figured out how to go from the Arctic to the tropics to the frickin' everywhere, right? Be aquatic people, be mountain people. And then we also learn how to change our environments to create cities and be city people. And 
as a result, if we came hardwired for a certain environment, we'd be unadaptive quickly because our whole goal is to be adaptive to lots of environments. So we come very softwired to learn how to be adaptive to new environments, which means we are more impacted by our environments by any, than by any creature. That's kind of the whole gist, right? It's because we create environments. We have to in turn be created by them to be adaptive. So we're mostly not controlled by our just genetics, but our mimetics, so our genetics selected for mimetics, for neuroplasticity and the ability to be encoded by an environment. And so we look throughout history at what people have believed and how they behaved as a result of their environmental conditionings and ubiquitous patterns that were in common within an environment. We say, okay, so there was a time where everybody in a certain area believed that God was Zeus and there was another pantheon of gods around and blasphemy against Zeus was the worst thing and nobody believes that now. And they had the same genetic brains that we do, right? They were as smart as we were. And there was another time where everybody believed the earth was flat, where using the zero was witchcraft, where whatever the fuck things people have believed, right? Ubiquitously in the whole populations. And then we also look at like, okay, we've got an environment like say Jains or let's take Buddhists, where across three millennia, we've got tens of millions of people who because of a way that they're conditioned, same genetics basically, the way that they're conditioned all won't even hurt bugs. Then we go to the Sudan and we look at the Janjaweed and we see an entire population where everybody hacks people apart with machetes. And we say, okay, well, human nature is, right? Human nature is Buddhists and Janjaweed. And so human nature is radical plasticity to be coded by its environment on how to behave within an environment. Okay, so as soon as we get that, we get the importance of that our adaptive capacity is to adapt to what the environment is saying is fit. And now we have digital environments. And so many people have more friends online than in person, spend more time, have more contacts there, have more total information intake and have more output. They have a level of shyness in person that they don't have online, so they engage more, et cetera. So the digital environment is the primary environment that is psychologically conditioning them. And humans are psychologically conditioned both in their beliefs more than anyone wants to admit. We want to think that we're the really smart, rational, critical thinking ones that would have never believed in Zeus, which is just silly when you think about that for a minute. And, uh, or that we're really the ones that are ethically self-directing that just happen to have an aesthetic like everybody else around us. Um, so, when we get that, we say, okay, what does, if we're building digital environments that are inexorably coding our deepest patterns of belief and behavior, and, and that just is, whether we want to or not, it's going to, what do we do with that? What is, the, what is a responsible way to relate to the facts of that? Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, so that's, that's really the essence now. We, we've sort of established the realm of the problem. And the problem is the same as the solution, which is just that we are embedded in a fabric that conditions our mimetics and our choice making and our sense making. And since there is no subtracting or removing the fabric, there's no vacuum. There's simply what's the different fabric we want to replace this with. They use the urban planning metaphor. We live inside of or, or inhabit a city of sense making and choice making called a smartphone. And we've just seen that it's filled with casinos and blue lights and AI and dangerous stuff that makes people believe conspiracies. The answer isn't just blow up the whole city and get rid of all technology. It's like, let's make a livable city with, by paying much more detailed attention to wisdom and human values. Um, the premise and phrase of the, or rather the premise of the phrase time well spent 
is because time is the finite resource. It's not that time needs to be optimized, but time well spent over a lifetime is a life well lived. So what does it mean to have a life well lived? Um, and to do that, I mean, our least vision of some of that with the Center for Humane Technology is to take uh, a lens back at ourselves, to turn the telescope back at human, about how the human system works and say, what do we actually need? So the first thing is we have a body. So do we want digital technologies to completely ignore our bodies and just maximize for thoughts, screen time, digital interaction, consumption, virtual interactions, et cetera? Or do we want to pay attention to the fact that we have a body? So there's got to be some portion of our lives and our experience that if our screens are supporting a certain sort of menu of choices, some of those choices have to be supporting the life outside the screen. They have to be supporting the choices we want to make with each other um, and using our bodies and going places. Um, so that's like the simplest example of, of some of these things. But I think Daniel, you have some, some places you might want to go with this. So I want to just double click on one thing that was an aside that you said, because I think some people will uh, maybe latch on to it. And I, and I think it's actually deep to some of this. So you, you mentioned uh, driving people into polarization and gave as examples conspiracy theory and anti-vax. So I just want to actually say something about these things. Are there ever conspiracies? Of course. Are all conspiracy theories true? Of course not. Now, how the fuck does one actually figure this out? Um, so what is a conspiracy? Well, some people have conspired to do something that they had some advantage for. Now, do we incentivize people sharing information with each other that they don't share with everyone else because the information creates a source of strategic advantage in a game theoretic environment like capitalism or war? Well, of course. And we see Watergate's get leaked. We see Enron's. We see the Enigma program. We see like, we know those things, right? Um, and for all the ones that we find out, there's probably a whole bunch of them that we don't find out. Now, yeah. now does that mean that the whole world is run by lizards? Um, lizard aliens, right? Or it, so how does one go about making sense of something where the actual information might be intentionally hidden? There might be disinformation. People who come forward as a whistleblower might be real, like you here, or might just be wanting to get attention themselves and sell books. How the fuck do we figure something out that complicated? If we take vaccines, are we saying that polio vaccines did no good? How about the Gardasol ones? What about ones with Thimerosal versus not? Is it how many total vaccines happen at once? Have vaccines never hurt anybody? Well, that's silly. Are all vaccines genetically engineered to brainwash everyone into sheep? Well, that might not be the story either. This means I actually need to have a nuanced point of view and very detailed sense making that is not a black or white, all or nothing radicalized point of view. Well, now that's a bitch because I have to actually learn how to think. And I have to learn how to vet through a bunch of sources of information that have their own motive to tell me what's true that is not my motive. And it's not just a motive of truth. So you ask me, what do, which vaccines do I think are good and which ones aren't? And which ones are problematic? And where did the companies know they were problematic ahead of time? Where did they know they were problematic after a certain point but didn't pull them? Where could they have not pulled them because of their fiduciary responsibility to stakeholders? And I'm going to paint a very nuanced, complicated picture. And I'm also going to say, and I don't know the whole thing. I have a Bayesian probability on my best assessment. And the same is true conspiracies. So there's a deeper principle here also of that one of the basal motivations to go to is oversimplified certainty 
in scenarios that actually need complex nuanced understanding. And the oversimplified certainty will always lead to partial views that will be in direct opposition with other partial views, which means radicalization. Yep, and that those oversimplified certainties will do better in the attention economy than things that are complex, which simply by taking that much effort and time just won't do better. If you had Facebook that was all about, um, here's the really nuanced, complicated sense-making around some of these conspiracy theories, people would just say, they throw up their hands and say, no, just tell me the simple answer. I mean, there's also a developmental lens here. I know you are, are, are friends with Ken Wilber and one of the best lessons that I ever got, one of the most amazing cognitive tools I ever got was the pre-trans fallacy. Um, that you know, there's different ways to hold a view. And there's the um, naive woo-woo way of saying meditation's great, it'll just make everything vibrate and everything's wonderful. And, and then a lot of people who are told, well, that's like those crazy new age people. And so we're, not, we're just gonna ignore all that. Therefore, meditation is all you know, not real and none of this stuff is real and those people are just woo-woo. And then there's these, then there's a, so that's the, what's called that the savvy view. The first view is the naive, the naive view. Next one's the savvy view. Then there's the wise view which someone more like a, you know, a you or a Sam Harris or someone who basically does embrace meditation, but actually has the self-awareness to see the complexity of what it's really about and what access it gives you. Uh, and the problem is that if you're someone who says meditation is great and that's all you say, it's indistinguishable whether you're speaking from the wise view or from the naive view. This probably sounds sort of actually not true in this example because I made the naive view sound deliberately so naive. But for all sorts of things, I mean, people talk about drugs, there's the naive view, and then there's the wise view. People talk about, um, uh, uh, this is actually Carol Dweck, not Carol Dweck, what's her name? The woman who studied moral reasoning on abortion. Um, there's just all sorts of issues where you can hold a view from the naive place, you can hold a view from a wise place, but it sounds indistinguishable. And the pre-trans fallacy is, uh, are you hearing someone who's saying something um, really wise as the naive thing? This actually happened in the Trump election because you know, you could say, hey, do we have a problem with immigration where we're actually, there's just not a control system on this thing. It's kind of the gates are off. And you could say, yeah, we do have that problem. Um, and so then Trump comes in and says, we're going to just like slam down on immigration and do these things. And that sounds, um, uh, I'm kind of getting this, I'm kind of botching this explanation. It's a sensitive topic. One of the other sort of things about this is that um, the things that have pre-trans fallacies tend to be very controversial. And so people tend not to want to talk about them at all because they can be misinterpreted so easily. The, the example you're giving is, is the answer to immigration, keep all the gates open and let everyone in with no discernment? No, that would be silly. Is the answer to immigration, keep everyone out for all purposes and get rid of everyone who's here that doesn't have proper documentation? Well, that's pretty silly. Those are both simple. Yeah. And there is a certain bias to select them just because they're simple. And the view that says, well, what is the right criteria to determine people coming in and not, and whether we should uh, deport people or not, or again, now we actually have to think through things pretty clearly and deeply and well, and you can't do that in a soundbite. And so simply the optimization for soundbites is gonna be the optimization for fundamentalism. Yeah, exactly. And anything, and, and I think a different way to phrase are um, the most important existential challenges we face are in this controversial territory. They're not simple. And so one of the things that's most worrying to me is the places that we need to spend our attention and the kind of sense-making we need to have to answer any of these problems requires us to go into the most controversial areas and to have this complex nuanced understanding which is gonna take time, effort, and discomfort. And so we need to 
have the most empowered high agency people in our society who are able to change these things to be living in that place. And that means that we're going to be incurring this deeper tax and we're going to have to talk about controversial topics. Because there's another dynamic where people actually don't even want to talk about these things because then they get tagged as, you know, they're touching a radioactive thing. There's no way to touch it without invoking the SNL skit about being careful. So that's, you know. Interestingly, the first uh, podcast we did on the show was our, our good friend Zach Stein from Integral World and from uh, Harvard Psychometrics. And we were talking about how to assess intelligence and how to develop it. And so I asked for uh, practical tips at the end. And he's one of the leading thinkers in developmental psychology and education in the world. And he said something that was so obvious and so simple, but uh, important. He said, um, read books and control your focus to be able to focus for longer than you think you can. And you, your muscles don't get bigger unless you lift an amount of weight that's actually hard. Otherwise, there's no evolutionary impetus to build them and your attention won't actually get better unless you force your attention to keep staying when it wants to go. So he said, get off of Facebook and turn push notifications on everything off and read books that don't flash. And when your attention wants to go, come back and train how to actually have attention. So you start to be more sovereign over your own attention. Duh. Yeah, I mean. Uh, and, and also just to notice that we have embedded, the, I mean, the default settings of any human animal's you know, experience with the default settings of technology today are the exact opposite of everything you just said. Yep. I think, and, and it's also the immediate lever point to, to, to solutions. I mean, this is going to take a, we call, we call our work on this. I mean, this is not just raising public awareness and you know, giving random talks. This is about creating cultural awakening. But this is a invisible, subtle threat to our capacity to deal with any challenge because clearly our attention spans have been shortening uh, dramatically by all these technologies. They're not making us think more deeply. And I, our, um, the passivity of the experience is also critical. We are not thinking actively, we are passively uh, thing. And, and, and you know, recognition in the brain is a much easier cognitive process than recall. Free recall and thinking creatively and invoking and recruiting those cognitive resources to work out a problem is very different than when you see the study sheet for a test and say, oh, that's the answer to number two. Oh, that was, that's easy. I, I, would have, I would have gotten that. It's much easier to say I would have gotten that than to actually throw yourself through it and say, oh, man, this is, this is actually hard. And so we have the mistake of being experts in things that we're not experts in. There's another dynamic with social media that it exposes us to so many things across so many different fields that makes all of us feel like we actually are the experts in every field because we've certainly clearly read a lot about it. Um, and so it gets very, very complicated very quickly where we are. So wait, I've only actually read the abstracts and maybe I didn't even read the abstracts. I read the title of the magazine that talked about the abstract in a Facebook post, but I read enough of the, I, I kind of know what's going on. So, but I appreciate it. My friend Daniel's really smart. So maybe he was, he's right. So that therefore it must be true because he retweeted it. Even though keep in mind, Jack Dorsey retweeted Russian propaganda, John Trump retweeted the Russian propaganda. There's a lot of ways we get fooled by simply resharing people that we think are experts. So then what happens is, we have increasing confidence about stuff that we know progressively less well. Yep. Okay. So I want you to come back to, we've actually covered a lot of territory and I want to come to a few parts that have a, an important aspect of insight that we haven't got to yet. You were talking about Facebook and it's really not Facebook. It's any platform that someone is interacting with deeply and sharing personal information. Uh, but let's take Facebook right now, since it's been the example, having information about us that is um, maybe we can call it privileged information. 
there's uh, information that maybe we don't even know they have. So talk to me about privileged information and um, if, if there's a group that's creating a digital environment that is conditioning humans, how should we create that? That's a very complex topic. There's a lot of ethics and design in what is desirable, but is there at least something about incentive alignment and not having incentive mismatch that's important? So talk more about that and the, the fiduciary agreement. Absolutely. So right now we have, you know, so long as the consumers view these technology products as simple tools, Facebook's just a tool. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the website, I'm going to sign up, I'm going to hit agree on the terms of service. And when I hit agree, I'm entering into a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, a contract relationship. I am just as responsible. If something goes wrong here, I'm addicted. It's my fault. If something goes wrong with um, certain data that is used to advertise to me, well, I clicked agree on the agreement. So therefore, I'm responsible for uh, giving that information to Facebook and not really reading that, that agreement. Um, this is a huge problem because, um, as you already mentioned, uh, and as I learned from Jordan, uh, that um, you know there is a different kind of relationship operating here, a one of asymmetry. Think about you and how much you know about your own brain and what colors light up your brain and the private information that you know about you. Then think about Facebook and how much it knows about both privileged information that you have knowingly shared with them and then the non-privileged information, the fact that when it reads your clicks, it actually knows your big five personality traits based on your behavior alone, because it turns out you can infer that. It knows more about us than we know about ourselves. In situations where we have one party having asymmetric knowledge to exploit the other party, take an attorney and their client, um, take a psychotherapist or a doctor and their patient, um, because on two counts, one is in the attorney-client situation, the client is sharing deep personal privileged access information um, for personal information. And the second is that the lawyer knows, the attorney knows a lot more about the law than you do. So on two counts, there's this deep asymmetry. Same thing with the doctor. If you line up side by side with that, Facebook, how much power does Facebook have to exploit you? It knows way more about how all people's minds work than you do. It knows a lot more about the privileged information that you've shared with it and the unprivileged information, including what colors light up your brain and what word choices on political ads will most activate your amygdala and all of these kinds of things. And yet it's governed with this peer-to-peer -peer contract relationship where we have a name for the first two kinds of relationships with attorney-client privilege, uh, financial uh, institutions and uh, financial services and, and, their, and their customers, which is a fiduciary relationship to govern this asymmetry. And you know, the, my favorite metaphor to describe this uh, is a priest in a confession booth because a priest also has asymmetric access to you. But imagine a priest, or imagine Facebook is a priest that's listening in two billion to two billion confession booths, the same priest. And it listens to your conversations outside the confession booth with everyone you ever talked to. And it knows your location, and it knows whose ex-romantic partners you click on at two in the morning or three in the morning. And it knows the colors that light up your brain. And it's got a supercomputer next to it that processes all two billion people's confessions to predict confessions you're going to make that you don't know you're going to make and button choices you're gonna click that you don't know you're gonna click, and divorces you're gonna have that you don't know you're gonna have. And then the last part is to imagine that the entire business model of this priest in the confession booth is to sell access to that to another party so that they can manipulate you as best as possible with that information. We would never allow this to exist. <laughs> this is absurd. 
And we've somehow backed ourselves into this environment because we never realized how much power we were giving away to this entity. And so immediately what you can say, once you reclass this and say, okay, we can have priests and confession booths, but they can't be governed by a relationship where they, their entire business model is to manipulate, is to sell access to manipulate you. You know, you, we can have a priest and a confession booth where the church is paid by some kind of public tax, or we can have a priest and a confession booth where the client pays the priest or something like that. But we at the very least cannot have the business model where priests make money by selling access to 2 billion people's confessions. And I think that's gonna require reclassing Facebook under a different kind of law, under fiduciary law. Okay, so you said a lot and I want to um, highlight a couple parts of it. So whether we're talking about a doctor or a priest or uh, a lawyer or any of those relationships, they were basically engaging them on our behalf as an extension of our own choice and our own agency. And so the key of the fiduciary agreement is that they don't have an agency with respect to us different than our agency for ourselves, right? They aren't trying to win at a game against us because we wouldn't want to share that information with them then. So the lawyer only wins if we win, right? They're working on our behalf and the, the priest, the doctor, it's supposed to be that kind of dynamic. So then we're willing to share the info with them because they're operating on our behalf. I wouldn't want to share a bunch of personal info with someone who was going to use it to try to sell me shit that I didn't want or operate against me in some way um, or empower others to do so. Now, so we talk about privileged information, right? I share privileged information with the priest, but you said something that was really key about listening to my other conversations. The priest doesn't actually get to hear what I say to my wife or my friends or my kids or my business partners, just what I choose to share with the priest, which is already a lot. But if I, if I write to my wife on Facebook Messenger, uh, I'm actually writing to Facebook as a platform and then it's intermediating that message and then sending it to my wife, which means it has the info from that message. And it, it knows not only what am I saying to her and what am I saying to my actual therapist and my actual lawyer that I might communicate with over those channels, um, but also which channels I'm actually communicating with. And so then we say, okay, has there ever been a precedent for that level of privilege escalation? There's just no fucking precedent. And we aren't even using the level of precedent that we have for things way less powerful, right? So at minimum, fiduciary agreement might not be adequate, but at least as a starting place, we have some precedent in law that says, if people are sharing that much information and if there's that much asymmetry of power, a fiduciary relationship is necessary. Now, that would completely fuck the business model of these businesses. Right, because if Facebook said, "Okay, we're not gonna, we're gonna try and have our agency be your agency, an extension of your agency, and not try to maximize time on site so that we can increase the uh, cost per click value of what we're sending, you know, what we get the advertisers to pay," well, their stock price just plummeted, and someone else who's willing to do the same thing beats them. And so, how do we deal with that? I think these are questions that have to get worked out because as you just said, um, this instantly negates the business model. And there's no way for Facebook to be in its same position without that business model. Uh, and it would be like, you know, rapidly changing from all of fossil fuels. I think these environmental metaphors are very similar. You know, rec waking up and recognizing that you have these polluting fossil fuels that are powering your whole economy. And even once you realize you don't wanna be powered by that, you can't just do a full Indiana Jones swap 
where you take one off the other and you replace it with something that's different, that gives you a different economic output, the weight isn't the same. It can't prop up the world economy in the exact same way. And so much like fossil fuels, I think we're in the situation where Facebook is waking up and it's become this kind of tobacco company that it doesn't want to be. And the question is, how do you transition yourself or how have external parties transition you to do something that is not as dangerous? I will say that for the short term, they're working as fast as possible within their business model to try and align things. But fundamentally with, with power this powerful, as you said, I think of this as a new species of power. I mean, it's literally, I mean, it's, I think it's the most dangerous species of power. We have 2 billion people's memetics um, conditioning environment that are all strapped into this one AI run by people who are 20 to 35 years old for the most part, making decisions for people whose language they don't speak, whose cultural um, sensitivities they are not always aware of and can only find out retrospectively and the machines already running. And once they find out the runaway AI is taken off, they can't just flip the switch off because it's a company and it's stock price. And so how do we do that? Um, I think there's a bunch, it depends on what, how radical you want to be in, in changing the situation and how much stability you want as you make the transition. Okay, so Facebook has an agency that is not just our agency. It is not a benign tool like a hammer. It is actually an agent that looks like a tool. And so the bitch of that is if we're looking at a person or we're looking at an animal, we're like, okay, there's agency there that could do something. I need to be conscientious of that. But if I'm looking at just a tool that I move and I click where I go, I don't think that, but if it has that, so we got to get that done. All right. But it's agency is, it doesn't want me to be radicalized. It doesn't want me to believe a particular conspiracy theory or make me racist or um, that's not its agency. Its agency is just that I spend a lot of time online, right? Because that's how it sells the most advertising. It just happens to be, that I'm susceptible to getting very scared about Islamic uh, fundamentalism and I can become a racist and spend more time on site because of my fear there, or I can become a whatever it happens to be, right? Um, uh, Antifa or et cetera, because that those fear motivators from an evolutionary point of view um, or those hypernormal stimuli from a, I'm just clicking on Photoshop pictures of hot girls all the time or whatever it happens to be are uh, what maximize my time on site. So it is not wanting to make me a racist or an addict. It's just ambivalent to doing so. And that happens to be what works to maximize my time on site, which is what its agency is. So it's not guiding the world. It's making money. It just happens to be guiding the world as an externality. But if the externality is that more people have more broken information ecologies and are more certain about more wrong things and are more fundamentalist. And we more lonely and more depressed and more teen suicides and more, all of those are externalities of this would go on. Yeah. Now the teen suicide and the depression and the, and the bulimia and the whatever is a major bummer, but it's not an existential bummer writ large. Might be an existential bummer to that kid who killed themselves. Right. But world war three is, is a existential issue. And environmental degradation writ large is an existential, at least catastrophic issue that could be increasing in its probability based on these dynamics. Yes. So it's just important to think about it at the actual level of consequence that it is. And that's what guides 
us every day, as you know, Daniel, I lose a lot of sleep over these issues, even though we're smiling a lot in this conversation, it's because I think the need to change this is urgent. Um, and uh, honestly, because these are the systems that people already live in so much, uh, we'd be best off for those people who are aware of this to simply not be using them at all, um, or to help those that, that are still jacked in, um, like the matrix, to, to be um, to have to basically help the companies, including Twitter and YouTube and, and 4chan and Reddit and all these other ones that have similar dynamics um, to do the best job as they can because the consequences that they uh, enact are every single day. We live, this is not just a philosophy conversation, as you know, this is a very real practical daily conversation. Um, and you know we have found that we've been able to shift it and, um, and accelerate some of the positive changes that they're trying to make um, but that's going to be limited to the quality of the thinking and the moral care and sensitivity in the minds and the hearts of the people at these three or four companies. Okay. So talking about the practical side of it, when this podcast comes out, which I want people to hear, you and I are both going to share it on Facebook. What the fuck? So yeah. uh, t tell me how we reconcile that one. Um, well, the, it speaks to another version of the asymmetry of power, which is that they don't just own identity and self-worth and how often people get their dosing, uh, and they don't just own epistemology and sense-making. They also own the channels by which we can reach each other. Um, is there a better channel to reach a wider number of people that are, that are relevant to us than Facebook right now um, or Twitter? You know, when, the other platforms had the similar problems, by the way. So um, that is one of the other challenges. I'm speaking more in terms of challenges, but you can email people. But of course, that creates, uh, creates costs, search costs and, and, and effort costs in, in actually trying to pull up the email addresses of all those people. You probably have to message all those people on Facebook anyway. Um, and, and part of this is because time is limited and we don't have much time to do anything these days and we're so overwhelmed in GDPR emails and uh, whatever else we're getting. Um, it, it, it makes it very hard. We're very seduced by convenience. And convenience is another part of the attention economy because the things that are most convenient end up winning. And so we're gonna have to figure out how do we create alternative communication channels that make it easier for us to get information out to the people we care about without uh, emboldening the, the existing actors. Okay, so I wanna get into a little bit of why this is hard. So first, network dynamics are a real phenomenon. So if they're if I go to Facebook and almost everybody I know is on Facebook, the ease, the convenience of I can share something and everybody can possibly see it. I can tag them all. I can scroll through my friends list to jog my memory of who should see this thing, whatever. Awesome. Cause most everybody I know is on there. Now, if I go to some new platform that somebody launches and there's like uh, a 10th or a hundredth of the people that I know that are on there, I've got to use 10 different platforms. That's a pain in the ass, right? So we've got to, in order to have something else really, be competitive with that, it's got to get the right network dynamics. But that would mean it would need a profit model that could pay for all the advertising and which is now also manipulation um, that has to use similar types of dynamics to get people off of Facebook and there. And so then we say, now we're going deeper than social media, we're going to capitalism and saying, the more money that I make, the more capacity I have to make more money. I have access to better financial services, interest on interest that is compounding. And the, if I distribute that money, I have less access to be able to continue doing that. So there's a self-referential process to the accumulation extraction dynamic. 
So for something else to be able to outcompete Facebook without doing the things that makes Facebook win within the particular game theoretic dynamics, even though so much of the cost is externalized, but so what is actually tricky, right? So we got to factor all that. Now, specifically Twitter and Google and Facebook and YouTube and all the ones you're mentioning are platforms, which means that they are a central company that is seeking to grow its revenue and profit as a company that is interacting with users, trying to create the symmetric relationship that's actually asymmetric. So it seems like there's a problem with platform writ large and that we either have to make the platforms fiduciaries, which means that they don't sell marketing advertising, which is a totally new model at minimum, or we have to not have it be a platform, which means if it's kind of a decentralized protocol that doesn't have a central orientation towards profit, it doesn't have the same motive or incentive to do, like the the profit motive is actually core to why the algorithms would do what they do. So in, we, you know, we've got a lot of people that are listening to this that probably work in the blockchain space and the decentralized computing space and everyone hears a problem of a platform that could be replaced by a protocol, what are some things that you hope that people who are in that space that might actually have access to a different set of economic incentives um, think about when they are exploring alternatives that might be able to address some of these problems? Mm, This is a hard question. and I think you know more about the protocols um, right now than, than, than I do. Um, but I think that they need to pay attention to attention as being the finite resource um, that, that they are in the process of managing. And yet to be careful about trying to price everything in terms of attention or turning into this like linear quantified type thing. Um, because there's fuzziness in the nuance of human choice making and some of the best choices in life are, are not um, many of the best choices in life are not rational, considered, and perfectly calculated, and have these perfect transaction costs and things like that. Um, I think there's an important thing to ask, which is simply, what are people's values? Um, my colleague Joe Edelman uh, has some really deep views on one of the things that's wrong about how we viewed design processes um, in terms of technology, and even the idea of human-centered design process, is that people have goals. That's what we thought that the enlightenment was all about. Oh, instead of we're all in service to the king or something, we are, we can be our own king. We each have our own goals. And then everything is about helping people achieve their goals. And design is all about goal-driven design, helping people get their jobs to be done, tasks completed, things like this. And instead, we need to ask, what does it mean to help people live by their values? Because that's what's sustainable. If you had a choice, I'm visiting my mother right now. Uh, And so if you had a choice between visiting your mother, as stated, that there's a goal of visiting your mother versus what is visiting your mother really about? Um, It's about being maybe present or loving um, or, um, you know, available um, and um, uh, helpful. I don't know. There's a different set of values you might have. If you could choose between visiting your mother, but not being loving, present or available, or not being not visiting your mother, but still able to be for her present, loving, available. Which one would you choose? You would pick your values, which speaks to the fact that underneath everything are things that are actually important to us. And what's usually unfulfilling or um, uh, problematic for us when we have an experience where we reach our goal. Oh, I did that thing. I, I visited my mom. But if I didn't actually do the thing that it was really about, which was being loving, present, vulnerable, aware, available, then I'm gonna feel empty. Like, well, I just kind of came up here, 
which is what I am where I am right now. So this is very present for me. Um, so I think about these things as how do you make values driven design choices that actually uh, activate in people processes, reflective processes that encourage them to think about what's important to them, why they're doing something, what they're really trying to get out of it. For example, is email about, you know, knocking off all my email or, you know, playing this email whack-a-mole game and getting back to everybody. That's a goal-driven way to see email. But values would be to asking, what is the most important thing that email needs to enable me to do today? Um, you know, and right now email is not at all in service of our values. It's not even really in service of our goals, except to, uh, in a naive transactional way to send messages to each other. And so I think the revolution in software design and protocols is gonna to be to be sensitive to human values. And for people who are interested in this, I really recommend they check out Joe Edelman's writing uh, and thinking about this. He's teaching a design course, trying to get Facebook and Twitter and other YouTube and Apple designers into this kind of thinking process. Because what's really, where we've really been lost is in um, you know, not being able to use our evolutionary instincts in environments in which the sort of wisdom about how to use them is present. You know, take something like cyberbullying. Right now, this is seen as like a content problem. We need better AIs to detect cyberbullying and then just like take down that bad, toxic content. Instead of really asking the question, what about the situation or the design of the social situation are enabling or encouraging cyberbullying to occur? And it's because the natural ways that cyberbullying would occur in a physical environment where I would see someone get hurt by the thing I said, and I'd see friends come to their side, and I'd see other friends of mine look at me if I'm the bully in kind of skeptical disgust. Um, all of those cues are gone from our social software spaces. And that takes basically paying attention to how we reconstruct some of those uh, social dynamics inside of software, which is a very different discipline of design. And so I, you know, I really wanna pitch that there's a different way to do design that's gonna take a radically different view of, of human nature and values and, and really abandon our attachment to goals. And um, you know, Joe even thinks of this as kind of a political revolution. We'll see where that goes. Okay, two things in there that I think are maybe some of the most important points that have been said so far, so I want to um, repeat them is you're actually speaking of goals as a kind of hypernormal stimuli. Um, yeah. And so I want to just kind of say something about hypernormal stimuli a little bit more overarchingly than we have so far. If we look at developed Western culture, we can see that uh, overeating sugary foods and sugary foods, salty foods, fatty foods is ubiquitous where every January 1st, people are trying to change that and uh, suffering from diseases of overconsumption and et cetera, and that body image issues accordingly are ubiquitous and et cetera. We see that um, there's a whole generation that grew up with easy access to online porn that had never happened before that actually have, have sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, intimacy dysfunction issues because the level of hypernormal stimuli of a triple X gangbang with the hottest people in the world that are photoshopped and have plastic surgery and whatever, there's just no real life situation that will be able to meet that same level of stimuli. So the hypernormal stimuli downregulate their sensitivity to normal stimuli. We see that people are swiping left and swiping right on dating sites where everyone is putting airbrushed photos of themselves or at least doctored photos of themselves to where actual normal people aren't attractive to them. And they, it's, so the thing that's supposed to help you build relationships is damaging relationships. The thing that's supposed to help provide nutrients is damaging your physical health. Now goals are another interesting one because checking off the checklist is another one of those things where 
In the same way that sugar doesn't provide real nutrient but has hijacked the impulse for nutrient, yeah. uh, checking off the to-do list doesn't provide a real sense of a meaningful life, but it hijacks the impulse for meaningfulness in the form of productivity and in the form of the yeah. lowest common denominator version of productivity. And so I can check off my to-do list every single day, get to my deathbed and realize my life was utterly fucking meaningless and totally extrinsically controlled, but I got a lot of hits. I cleaned my desk, right? And so to just recognize that from the point of view of capitalism, addiction is super profitable. If I am supplying something, it's not the naive idea was demand existed, and so then supply emerged to support demand. But then of course, supply wants to grow, so it wants to manufacture more demand. That becomes what marketing is all about. And if people become not just interested in my thing, but addicted to my thing, that's super fucking profitable. If I can drive the addiction, that's super profitable. And so we notice these hypernormal stimuli, like sugar creates a dopamine response more than a salad does. But if I eat, so I feel better in the moment when I eat it, but my life feels worse as I keep eating it overall. The salad doesn't give me a hit right away, but if I keep doing it, my baseline goes up. So with every hypernormal stimuli, I get a momentary hit and then a drop and a degradation of baseline over time. That's called addiction. With the things that are actually healthy, I get no hit and my baseline goes up over time. And that's, this is a characteristic arc of the way we have to move civilization, which is basically if I'm peddling addiction, what I'm doing is evil, right? If I am supplying hypernormal stimuli that are gonna hijack people's choice making in a way that leads to them having a worse life and lowering their baseline, even if I justify they made the choice, fundamentally, the world would be better if I didn't exist and I, my business didn't exist and I wasn't doing this thing. So then we say, well, why are we so fucking susceptible to hypernormal stimuli? And there's an evolutionary answer, which is in the evolutionary environment, there wasn't that much sugar. There was a tiny bit of sugar in the form of berries. Famine was a real thing. They were calorically dense. If we could get the calories in, we'd have a better chance of surviving. So we got a big dopamine hit from getting the sugar or the same with the fats or the salt, which were rare. Now that they aren't rare, we still have the same genetics. That means we have to be careful with the fact that we've created an environment we're not genetically adapted to. We have to be careful with that. But there's another reason that we're so susceptible, and you and I have talked about this a lot, I'm just putting this narrative in there, is that if in the 250,000 years of Homo sapien existence until not that long ago, we lived in tribes. And in those tribes, mostly what we were eating was nutritious stuff, so our body wasn't actually starving for nutrients. We had an unbelievable amount of depth of social interaction of 150 people who knew everything about us, who we knew, who we were bonded with, who had our back. And... So there was the normal stimuli of what we evolved being full made, meant there wasn't a vacuum that needed filled. Now, if I don't have a tribe and I don't have any security or people who really know me, and I think if anyone really knew me, they'd hate me and reject me because I'm such a fuck. And because I have a whole world that has set it up to, to be that way, then that void of human relationships makes me want to watch humans on TV and watch humans on social media and watch humans on dating apps and like get a hypernormal stimulus of human interaction. So the hypo normal environment makes hypernormal stimuli more susceptible. So we notice that when people go to a party where they're really connecting with their friends, they don't check Facebook every five minutes. And we notice that when someone is camping out in nature and they're eating food that they're finding in their garden, they don't crave sugar as much when they're exercising more. So there's a place where at a deeper level, 
the nuclear family, we've had money replace our need for each other. So we don't need each other anymore. I have no idea who the fuck my neighbors are and I wouldn't even like them as opposed to we always needed each other. And we've replaced it with this abstract thing. There's a hyponormal world where the core needs of how to be a fulfilled human aren't actually met or possible that makes us susceptible to being hijacked by everyone who has supply that wants to manufacture demand in us. So when we think about the new platforms, to not be evil, they have to not be doing this, right? Go ahead. And they have to, and I love what you're saying. I mean, the, the, the sort of simplified talking point version of it is um, the, the solution to addiction is an abstinence. It's rich fulfillment. It's just being embedded within the kinds of things that make life awesome. And like you said, when you have people at a party really enjoying themselves and talking to each other, people just don't even have that itch to look for technology when people are really present for each other in a meaningful way. And um, therefore, you know, I think Joe and I have been talking a lot about um, sort of a kind of a mission statement that our the mission of technology right now should be to repair the social fabric, meaning to repair these uh, hyponormal environments to be at least baseline normal environments so that we can take on our world's uh, most pressing challenges. Um, because if we're empty on the inside, you can have the perfect sense-making environment uh, around what's true and which conspiracy theories are true or whatever. But if we're still lonely and at home and, uh, and isolated, uh, that's really problematic. And so I think when we're thinking about the people out there that are building new platforms, how can your mission be to repair the social fabric and actually fill up the vitamin bins that are currently empty that need to be filled in first before we can even take on anything that's worth, uh, worth doing. Mm -hmm. So I want to add one more part to this and then I want to hear your, your uh, response on it. So you and I have talked a lot about that rivalrous dynamics, win-lose type dynamics always cause harm, direct harm because I'm trying to win against you because your win and my win can't happen simultaneously and indirect harm to the commons because we're trying to extract more resource from the commons than the other or externalize harm there or whatever. Now, as we have win-lose games that are multiplied by increasing technology, then exponential technology, the amount of harm starts to become catastrophic. And so we're looking at exponential technology in a particular space right now, social media. We could look at it in extraction of resources from the environment or pollution or warfare tech or whatever, and we'd see similar things. Um, now, as you know, the saying money is the root of all evil, we can say actually, Power over dynamics is the root of all evil. Evil is the idea that to advantage myself, I do it by controlling, harming, not respecting the sovereignty of you, right? That's the root of why people would harm other people is that there's an incentive to do so. Money just happens to be deep in that stack, but it's not the only thing. And so money is an instantiation of the class of power dynamics. And that's what we are ultimately wanting to address because in the presence of exponential technology, the power dynamics that have always led to war and environmental destruction and earlier civilization collapse lead to levels of collapse we can't actually make it through. So we've got to do something different than we've ever done. So now what that means is anytime I'm treating you as an other, that I'm trying to get to do something that I want, I should have a red flag go off inside my head. And that means, and I'm taking a strong view here and you know, I have a company that does marketing and I have to try and constrain it from not being evil. And because to just not go bankrupt, it, you know, has to work. So like, I understand this first person, but marketing is, is fundamentally a manipulative endeavor to get other people to do what you want them to do. And ethical interaction is to interact with someone in a way that actually 
acknowledges their sovereignty, honors it, and tries to increase and support their sovereignty. So I know you can't actually be happy and have a good life if you aren't sovereign. So the, the degree to which I'm trying to hijack your sovereignty will always be unethical. So then I have to say, okay, I don't want to manipulate you to do the thing I think is good. I'm the new guy that has figured out what good is. I'm going to get everybody to do it. That's the same fucking old story, right? I want to make it, I want to interact with you in a way that makes you less susceptible to manipulation by everyone, including me. Mm -hmm. And better at making sense yourself of the world and making good choices yourself and better at sense making choice making than me so that you help make a better world that I also get to interact in. So then we say, okay, how do we build technologies that increase the sovereignty of everyone that interacts with them rather than tries to guide their behavior aligned with our sovereignty, our sense making? I would offer that that's one of the very deep things that we want to be thinking about when we're looking at new technology. Completely. I mean, and this was. I mean, this is back to your point on infinite games and having shared interests. And, um, you know, I always say that the only form of ethical persuasion is where the persuader's goals are aligned with the persuadee's goals. Um, the challenge becomes, and some, this is an infinitely deep philosophical topic, obviously, the challenge becomes when, um, uh, you know, in the case of younger people uh, or people who don't have their own goals or they've atrophied their own sense of goals, uh, what does it mean to uh, interact with someone who hasn't developed their goals when you are going to be implanting new goals? Because successful advertising is you didn't actually have a goal, but I was able to convince you of this new goal anyway. And now I've won because you intrinsically are pursuing that goal on your own. But I think the point that you're really getting at here is, um, and the way I always thought about this is, how do you have a developmentally appropriate form of persuasion or meeting the person at the level at which they're conceptualizing their goals and their interests and their values, uh, meet them where they're at, make available a developmentally more open or high agency, higher capacity to see there's richer options maybe from where they are and not pushing them directly into any one of those areas. Um, you can't rip off the Band-Aid or, as my friend says, repeatedly kill Santa Claus over and over again, um, you know, when you're doing persuasion. Uh, it takes an incredible sensitivity and it, it takes a differential understanding that different people have different uh, underlying values and goals and, and uh, are in different places and how they make meaning. Um, but a lot of this just comes down to an incredibly deep form of empathy. Um, and one of the challenges I think that we have to still face is uh, how do you do this when there's a certain urgency to the level of threats that we face because as the urgency and timelines go down or go up uh, rather the timelines shorten or, or, or tighten up um, then the rush to persuade more effectively uh, becomes more urgent mm. um, and so these are certain dynamics that i think create ethical conundrums that are worth asking um, uh, because at the same you know while all this is going down and we care about the philosophy if the titanic is sinking we also have to take drastic measures to try to make sure it doesn't sink Okay, so this has been uh, extraordinarily valuable. I'm happy that all of this is available in one place and we can share it with people. Um, in the show notes, we will make a link to uh, Center for Humane Technology. We'll make a link to your personal website, to Joe Edelman's work and to Jordan Greenhall's work that you mentioned. Um, if there was anything else that was mentioned in here, we'll find it and put it. A uh, couple questions. If people want to learn more, are there any other resources that you would guide people to? And if people wanted to support the work that you are doing, is there a way that people could do that? Yeah, great question. In terms of resources, I think those are great starting points. There's lots of talks and writing available online. Um, that's been very popular. Um, you know, uh, 
there's also on our website small ways that people can try to make their phone hijack their evolutionary instincts less. Um, uh, even though we, you know, when you have gone through the whole conversation we just have, uh, clearly making your phone grayscale is not the thing that's going to solve the problem <laughs> for everybody. Um, and in terms of you know support, uh, this is really a movement. Um, this is uh, something that's going to take everybody. It's going to take a global village to solve this problem. Everyone should be aware of the problem. The first step is a cultural awakening and making as everybody you know aware of it as possible and dismantling some of the common narratives that this is business as usual or this is just persuasion as we've always had it. Um, uh, so that's the first part. Um, you know, we're always, we're a nonprofit. We always welcome financial support for anyone who's interested there. Um, and we're pursuing a lot of different pressure points to sort of navigate the system, both with inside connections with the tech companies, which we uh, speak to frequently, government pressure and hearings. We uh, work actively with the EU and US Congress, uh, and also, um, uh, you know, other constituencies like advertisers who actually fund uh, the current platforms and trying to steer their dollars in a different way. So um, we love help and support in any way people uh, are interested in getting involved. Uh, just check out humanetechnology.com or humanetech.com. Tristan, this has been, um, like I said, very valuable. I appreciate your time. And uh, really, I appreciate all the work that you've been doing because I, I happen to know what an insane schedule you've been keeping and the stress that you have been enduring to be at the front of this particular uh, process and uh, it's important and I'm grateful. Thank you, Daniel. Well, you've taught me a lot and uh, I'm really grateful for this conversation. Thank you for everything you uh, have been, have been uh, out there saying and sharing. All right. That's it, everybody. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you like this episode, Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Want to learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.